This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I think this is a critical message, and I want to begin to tie some things together and begin to define a forward movement for our church. And that's easier said than done because this, we're an interesting body to, to move forward. And we, uh, good intentions can oftentimes, you ever heard this statement, good intentions pave the way to hell. Uh, it's not, they don't, good intentions don't mean anything. You know, you could say, I, I intend to give my life to Christ someday in the future. That's just a bad way of living. And so I, I'm an action guy, really like action. I like to do things, not just intend to do them. And I know many of you feel the same. And steering a body like this is a very, very unique challenge that cannot be taken upon us as humans. It needs to be the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, that really is leading this body. And so it's a, it's a very important uh, time for us to, to f- determine that. And that's why this, I think this message will be very fascinating and encouraging and important. This fall, uh, God was stirring, and I could say personally in me, but I know in many of us here, if not all of us here, in regards to how we function as a body. For instance, in the typical sense of structure of church, 5% of the body do the work of the church and the rest watch watch everyone do the work of the church, the 5%. And I think every one of us without argument will agree that's just a bad model. It's the North American model. It's just sort of how it works. We've inherited it. And to move away from that sounds romantic. It's like, yes, let's throw that in the trash and let's move forward. However, it's easier said than done because it, it leads to a whole bunch of questions and it's an overhaul. It's the same thing. I could say to you, you have problems in your life. You need to change them. You go, I agree. That doesn't mean you know how to change them. Okay, in other words, just having the truth isn't necessarily what makes it operative. You need to know mechanically next steps. And oftentimes God will shine light at the end of your toe and say, there's your next step. It's like, well, God, I need to know this, though. He goes, you know what to do. Shuffle. And for many of us, that's where we're at in life. For instance, some of you, it might be a marriage issue. And you're like, God, I want to have a world-class marriage, one that shines forth the light of heaven, one that reveals the kingdom of heaven. Fix this. And he says, you know what to do. Shuffle. It's the first steps that God oftentimes is focused on, even though we can see in Scripture what it's supposed to look like. Sometimes he's, he's given us the remedy one step at a time, but it can lead to a frustration because many of us see where we should be. For instance, as a church, let me give you an overview, 50,000-foot level overview of our church. We are a very healthy church in many ways. In fact, so healthy that it's hard for us to repair where we are unhealthy. Because you could look around and go, whoa, we're so much healthier than that. Oh, look, we're so much healthier than that. Oh, come on. These guys are really messed up. We're healthy. And yes, we are healthy, but we need to be healthier. And there are certain things that I think all of us in here, if we were to stand back and I was to give you a little card and say, tell us where we're not healthy. It's weird how much uh, expertise we have in this room in regards to where we're unhealthy. 
okay? And most of us, when we are part of a family, a marriage, uh, when we have kids and someone would say, where are your kids unhealthy? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> We're very good at assessing lack of health. So other people from the outside want to be a part of our church. People all over the world stream this. Hey, guys. <laughs> and we have a tremendous following here. Like, people want, oh, I just wish I could move to Windsor and be a part of that church. Those of you that are here would probably say, well, before you pack your bags and go to all that work, you need to know a few things. I would say the same. I'd say a hearty amen to that. In other words, we're not all that. We're just a bunch of people that love Jesus, but we have the same issues as every other church could have. We just are maybe more mature in handling some of them. So as a result, they're not breaking us apart. But they're real issues that stem from the growth and the spiritual maturity in a darkened age. It is hard to heed a narrow way when there's a Broadway right over here that is constantly beckoning every single one of us. If it just beckoned one of us, then we could rebuke that one and say, hey, you either need to uh, shape up or ship out. It'd be easier if it was just one of us, but it's all of us. All of us have propensity towards flesh. All of us have propensity towards old man behaviors. All of us have propensity towards weakening our understanding and our hold on the truth and subtly agreeing with the enemy in that one area. And as a result, there's a constant tension in the body for us to do this thing together. So we started talking about spiritual gifts in the fall, and here's the bone I'm going to throw you. We want to continue that. I know some of you are like, yeah, they sure did forget about that one. No, it hasn't been forgotten about. It's that we've had quite a distraction. There's nothing quite like the Christmas season. Uh, I left for, I think it was around a month uh, in that. So here's the guy who was like, let's push this forward. See ya. Uh, so I left. And then coming back, it's, just, it's almost like a rhythm and a momentum thing. We've, we've had our distractions as a pastoral team. Not even bad. I think they're really good stuff that's making us stronger even for this. But... We run the risk of saying, God, we're, we feel you're calling us to go in this direction and having good intentions and not actually ever getting there. Every single one of us understands this vulnerability. How many times have you had a very clear vision of where you're supposed to go and then what happened next? Well, according to the scripture, there's a pattern for it. There's actually a story that shows this. Mount of Transfiguration, what did they see? The majesty of Jesus. They saw it clearly. I mean, the booming voice from heaven. This is he. Hear him. I mean, this is like, this is the Messiah. You see it. You know it. And Peter's like, let's stay here. And yet, there needs to be a forward progression. What awaits you when you go down that mountain? The crazies. It's known as the demoniac is what was awaiting them. I mean, it's just like uh, the exact opposite of what you saw up there. And in life, there is there's clarity where you're on a mountain and you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing with this body in this generation right now. And boy, oh, you're stirred up to do it. And then what do you run into? The fog bank. And the fog bank doesn't need to throw you off. It just easily can. But what do you need to remember during the fog bank? What you saw clearly on the mountain. So when you have seen something clearly, you need to rehearse that. Well, that's what this message is. This is a rehearsal of what we've seen clearly. This is just the beginning. I mean, this, th- just rehearsing what we've seen clearly could be a year-long review. In other words, this church has been entrusted much. But I want to go back to some basic of basics that I think are going to be important for this discussion on spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts, by the way, is a dangerous term because it causes certain thoughts to uh, start in people's minds. 
And, but what it is, in, a, in the most simple sense, is the confidence that Scripture is telling the truth. And that when we come unto Jesus Christ, we are each, as individual Christians, equipped. We are given something. It's known as grace. But it's a specific grace. It's not just a general grace where we all get Jesus. That's true. But we all get Jesus and something to make us strong to give and serve with. Where? Here. In other words, it's a gift that is given so that we could strengthen each other. Now, if you're never told about that gift, or you're never given an opportunity to exercise that gift, how strong is that gift going to be? It's going to be weak. And many of us have a gift, but it sits on a pantry shelf. It doesn't mean you don't have it. It just means it's never been called on. Is there, hey, don't you have something in your pantry? Well, I don't know. Let me check. Oh, I do have something. Well, bring it out. Share it with everyone. You see, in the modern church system, we oftentimes go to extremes with this. We have churches that only focus on spiritual gifts. And many of us in here have determined we don't necessarily want to be in that church because they tend to emphasize something to an extreme. Then you have other churches that de-emphasize spiritual gifts And some of us are like, ha, this is pleasant because it feels sane. It feels orderly. And yet it's missing something. So yes, you can be sane. I'm putting quotes around this for anyone who's listening to a podcast. You can feel sane and orderly and, you know, together and ignore large portions of scripture. You're not more right. And so as a result, there is a need for us as the body to find what this message would term the just balance. And so that's what I want to bring out, is that's what I'd say this church has a unique commission towards. We're not a denomination. People are always trying to categorize us, figure us out, and the moment they think they have us figured out, we throw a curveball at them. However, it's a curveball for all of us, because every one of us is looking for the place to sit. We're looking for what would define us in the spiritual zone. And we're all even in here going, well, I lean more this way than that person. We're all trying to find this place where we can create identity. And yet, that identity position is in Christ. And that should be what we share. Without distinctions in Christ, but in Christ. And functioning together in Christ is, like I said, easier said than done. It's one thing to esteem and say, oh, let's just be the body. Let's love each other. Let's all function our spiritual gifting. Let's do it right. And we're all like, amen, amen. And they were like, so how, how do you do that? And we look at each other and bounce on our toes and go, I, I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't know either. So, so how do we do this? That's, and maybe we're more progressed than that. Okay, I would like to think we're a little beyond that. But that's what we are all working through. Because when you don't have models, you don't have patterns in front of you, all you have is the text of scripture, oftentimes what we crave is a model. Okay, can I just study someone and watch them do it? And then I can say, oh, okay, that makes sense. So there's another burden I have. So I just brought up spiritual gifts. The other burden I have, I gave a sermon a few weeks ago. Well, I actually don't remember when I was last here. It seems like it's been a while. But it was called The Strategy of God. And in that, I was talking about the spirit war. So we have spirit gifts and the enabling of grace, and then we have a spiritual battle. Another burden that I have is to equip us to effectively not just function as individual Christians in a corporate body where every single one of us knows when we arrive here that we have something to give and that something is desired. 
In other words, that we want you to come and know that you are needed. We want every single one of us to be ready to serve and to give that which God has given to us. When One of the clearest pictures of this that I've ever seen is when Hudson and I went down to the movie set of Overcomer. It's the, uh, Stephen and Alex Kendrick's next movie. Uh, and so we went down to Columbus, Georgia and spent like four days out there. And I watched how this worked. It was like, I don't know, 100 to 105 crew members. And every single one of them knew exactly what they were to do to make that film. And every day they woke up early and they came to the set They had their bagel and their orange juice, and they were actually beginning to do their job. And then they're all coming together, and they pray together, and then they go out and they do their little thing. They all know what they're doing, and they all lean on each other knowing that the other person is trustworthy. They're going to get their job done. And then they, you know, the the PAs are like, quiet on the set. Hudson was a PA when he was down there. I think, Hudson, did you get to yell out, quiet on the set? Probably. Well, you should remember. But isn't, doesn't that sound fun to yell quiet on the set? If you don't have someone yelling quiet on the set, then you have someone like Eric, which is me. I was over to the side having a deep conversation. Some, suddenly this PA goes, quiet on the set. I'm like, oh, oh. But if I hadn't, I could have been, you could have maybe heard my voice in the back of one of the scenes, which would have been really cool. <laughs> but everyone was working together for a common aim. And I was thinking, okay, whatever that is, is what we need here. And yet it sounds really cool, but what are we doing, guys? Like there, they know they're making a movie. Here, what are we making? What are we doing? Why, why are we going to get up early and come together and have a bagel and orange juice? And what are we going to do? And do you know what part of it you would be? I have no clue. See, that's the point. I, I want us to know. And I want us to be laboring together. There's a lost and dying world out there. And unless this gets coordinated, we're just going to be eating the bagel and orange juice and going back home. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing, even though if I asked you, what are you here on earth for? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we could all stand up and applaud. So how are you doing it? In other words, if that really is the big aim of your life, then your life should aim towards it. Practically, you should be doing it, not just having a good intention. So you've heard me say this before. I know how to lead my own life. I know how to discipline my own life. I know how to build my life around a priority and do it. I don't know how to lead a church to do the same. I can cheer you on. I can yell really loud in a microphone. I can do that, but that doesn't mean you get up early the next morning and do it. It's a sort of a helpless feeling as a leader. And I recognize there's a dependence that comes in that. There's also this other dimension that I'm going to bring up called the spiritual war. We have a battle, and I see it. Okay, so I recognize that wolf packs will come and try and surround my life. But God has been training me for years in how to wield what we could call weapons. Weapons of warfare. I didn't invent that term. That's that's Paul uh, that used that term. Weapons of warfare that are not of the natural sense. They're not like a machine gun or an actual real sword. But they function like weaponry. That when I exercise them, it actually diminishes power of of the demonic side. It nullifies what they're doing, stops them in their tracks, and pushes them back. It's like most of us know that there's a spirit battle. We know it, even though intellectually we're sort of like, okay, I can't focus on that right now. 
Because we look at all the harassment in our life as just practical things. The devil will always whisper that too. He's like, well, it's because you did this. That makes sense. Yeah, if you had taken that vitamin C, you wouldn't have this cold right now. In other words, all these things, it's always just natural instead of recognizing... No, according to scripture, there's also a supernatural dimension to this. You have an enemy that wants to devour you. And so if you are not positioned daily to deal with that, well, guess what? You're going to be a pushover. So two things I just brought up that are deep burdens for me that I would like to move forward in as a church. You need to come every day, not just here to this environment, but you need to come into your life every day ready with something to give. You need to know that you're built to give it. You need to know what that something is, and you need to know how to effectively wield it. You also need to come into every day positioned for battle, recognizing that you have an enemy who wants to destroy you, and you have the upper hand. Why? Because you have the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You have the all-powerful name of Jesus, so therefore you fear not the enemy, and you have a big smile on your soul saying, and God has equipped me to actually change the world in which I live. And if all of us are doing this together towards one common goal, I don't know what film we are making as a church. I don't know how that is going to work. Like, what are we doing? Do we all do the same thing? Do we work towards one end? That's actually my dream. I would love it. I would love to have like one thing that we're doing. I don't know what that looks like, but I still would love it. I would like us as a church to begin to be knit together in those two things. It's basically summarized as readiness. Readiness to give what we have been uniquely gifted to give and readiness to stand firm for the truth of Jesus Christ in a darkened realm that desires to destroy it and steal it from us. So not only do we do that, but then we equip others to do that. And suddenly you have a game change in the world in which we live. So, first steps towards that. I'm only saying that just to revive the fact that, hey, this isn't forgotten, guys. We're very passionate about these things of us being equipped to function together. Have we made some big changes since I gave these great sermons on it last fall? Not really. How many great steps forward have we taken? Not many. However, I want to freshly bring it to the surface and say this isn't forgotten. And I want us to begin to take some steps. The just balance. Sort of a boring title. Sorry about that, guys. The subtitle may be even more boring. Being corrected to the measuring standard of Christ. It sounds really intense, doesn't it? I'm not impressed with my my title. When you you get what I'm saying, the title will make sense why I have it. But... uh, Let's just move forward. You know how I get caught on my titles, and I, I, think, I overthink them probably. Proverbs 16, 11. You'll hear this multiple times throughout this message. A just weight, which could also be equitable if you respond better to the term equity. The, a just weight and balance belong to the Lord. All the weights of his bag are his work. That's sort of strange. Well, back in the day, we go back into the biblical times, and what you have is the way that commerce works is based on measurements and weights. And so they have scales, like two little bowls or, or almost like plates. And the way that they would measure, like how much am I going to pay for that corn, is they establish a value for the corn, and then they weigh the corn. And then the merchant would buy the corn or sell the corn based on measurement. And so the common practice in that time was the art of subtlety. 
the art of being a merchant was you basically had to be a very good sleight of hand magician. And so you have, oftentimes, they would have two different sets of weights. They would have maybe the honest weight, but then they would have the dishonest weight to create a different measurement which would enable them to pay less or to cause someone to pay more, depending on what they're doing, buying or selling. And so oftentimes they were considered the lighter weights, the light stones. The light stones would create a disturbance in equity. Now the person buying or selling wouldn't know that. They would be trusting the merchant to actually give an accurate weight. I mean, they're putting the weight on there. It looks just like the other weight. However, it was lighter than the other weight, and as a result was creating a different outcome, which would cause someone to pay more than they should or to, pay, or to receive less than they should have for selling. But this says, A just weight and balance belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his work. Now, you could say, what does this have to do with anything? Well, that's what I want to uh, sort of get into. The merchant bag, which is what I just described, and the stones of measurement inside. Now, many of us, we need to recognize that God established the merchant bag, the honest measurements of things. So when he looks at our life, he doesn't have a light stone in there, and he measures our, light, our life against a light stone and says, well, you're fine. He actually measures it with justice, and he says, you're not fine. According to God's measurement of our life, we are unrighteous. And this is a loving God who cares about us, but he has to be honest. And his merchant bag, he pulls out and he says, dishonest, lying cheat, uh, you know, fornicator, uh, you know, proud, arrogant fool. We're like, that all just came from a loving God? That's a just weight. You see, in his bag is truth. And when he measures us, we are found wanting. Now, what's amazing about the cross is he actually is able to gain balance for our life and share his righteousness with us. So he's able to, through perfect just weights, actually bring justice to us in the most perfect way that saves us and rescues us. And that's just a whole other study in and of itself, but truly amazing, because in his bag are just weights. Now what we will do is we will swap out just weights, and we'll have our merchant bag, which we'll call it like our doctrine. And we'll swap out like the heavy stone. It's like that's a little too strong in scripture. And we'll get a lighter version of it. So it's like uh, the light version of that truth. Do you agree with that truth? Sure, I have the stone in my bag. This is what we do all the time. Oh, I have that stone. I believe it's biblical. Sure. And we stick the light version of it in our satchel. And then when we come to measure, we're off. You see, we're not creating a balanced weight, which is creating an imbalance in our life which then is an unjust way of living, which creates disorder. If you ever catch a merchant being false, what do you think happens? It's called a mob who comes in, swarms around that merchant, and in uh, times that weren't American, kill him. In other words, if you ever catch a merchant doing that, that is the highest violation because you have to trust that guy. And the same is true with those that are dispensing truth. If I'm in this position, I cannot have light stones. And yet the propensity to have light stones is a very, very real thing. Remember what we bring up spiritual gifts? What's my tendency? I look out there and I see some people that are maybe overemphasizing it. So what can I do? I can get a light version of it. Oh, I think it's biblical. Absolutely, light stone. You see, the same is true with anything I could bring up. Is we can easily default to light stones because we've seen someone overemphasize it on the scales. All the weights of the bag... Are his work. So all of truth and all true measurement of righteousness is his. 
So if there is something that is not in agreement with his measurement, that's not from his bag, guys. You've brought something in from the outside. You have an alternative model, and there's a reason for it. As a merchant, as one who is interacting with the culture and attempting to give truth to the culture, why are you doing that? Why are you skimping them on that one? Why aren't you giving the full counsel of Scripture on that? It's a good question for any of us that are in any position of sharing. Why would you de-emphasize that? You know, we all have our reasons. Well, I'm concerned that if they heard it the way Paul wrote it, they would come to this conclusion. See, I'm concerned that they're going to be weird and wild-eyed like, like it could happen if you did this. You see, what we're doing is we're making a decision and to swap out one of God's stones for our own. So the honest stone versus the cunning stone. Which one do you pull out and stick up there? You see, one of the things about artistry that is, is a high-level propensity, okay? For instance, if you're an artist, you recognize that to say something bluntly and boldly, like, yeah, you're a sinner, lost, dying, going to hell. There's only one means of salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. Every one of us that is inclined towards being an artist, what, what do we do with that? We're like, okay, you can't say it that way. What you need to do is sort of create a, an ambiance for it that is going to bring them in and cause them to say, oh, oh, I see. Now, it's not that that's wrong. To act, if you're a fisherman, what are you going to do? You're going to stick something on the line that's going to attract them, right? I mean, we're fishers of men, so we're not just coming up and bopping them in the nose. At the same time, we have also a tendency to maybe add a little glitz or dazzle or de-emphasize things like sin. I mean, if you, if you really say what, it, what is true... That might offend them. And you don't want to be too strong on sin. You don't want to be too strong on Jesus being the only way because those are triggers for our culture. And you don't want to be one of those wild-eyed Christians. And so what you do is you get your own stone. It's a light stone version of the gospel. And you stick it in your bag and you tote that around because it's a little more appealing to a generation. But what you're giving them is an unjust weight. And so as a result, that's, that's why we start with the premise, all the weights in the bag are actually his. So if you really want to create that justice, that equity for everyone's soul, if you want to give a correct measurement of truth to everyone, you have to allow God to define it. The truth stone versus the emotion stone. So I have a lot of emotion uh, that I've felt in my life being around the church. I think some of you, at least in the older uh, variety of, of attendance here, have the same. And so there's certain words that come up, there's certain ideas, certain doctrines that float out there, and you feel something. It's, it's weird, and because you're not, you're, in your mind you might be like, yes, okay, just listen to it, Eric, it's, it's fine, I'm sure they don't mean this. But you go through a certain uh, revulsion with certain things. I had a whole season of my life where I couldn't talk about the Holy Spirit. It, 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 you couldn't even get me to say the words except for if I could do it in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, because then it felt safe. It was like grouped with some competence, you know, some other strong characters, and it would sort of over, overshadow the weirdness of the Holy Spirit. Because what I had seen in my own experience was weird. And whenever someone was talking about the Holy Spirit, they got weird. And so as a result, it's like, okay, we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit lest I am perceived as weird, or they think I'm with them. So what did I get? I got a light stone in there. In fact, you could probably say, did you have a stone at all? Well, I would say it in these situations. I remember one guy saying, yeah, we have the Trinity. We speak about the Trinity in our church. Father, Son, and Holy Bible. I'm like, well, that sounds about right. See, it's the avoidance of something. 
where you diminish something and you're, you're in good intentions. You mean it for the sake of others, right? That's why you're doing it. But what you've done is you've lightened a stone and you're given a false measurement to yourself and to others. The word of God stone versus the experience stone. In other words, are you going by what the word of God says or by what you've experienced in your life? You know, and some of you that have gone through Ellerslie know that I say this quite often during our training here. I don't actually care what your experience is. I care about what the word of God says. And so I need to say that to myself every now and then when my own experience flares up and I'm like, well, we need to be watchful in that. Eric, what are you saying there? And everyone can say to me, Eric, we don't care what your experience is. We care what the word of God states. And that's exactly right. In other words, in the leadership of this church, it shouldn't be led by Eric Ludy's experience, which it can be. At times. I mean, there's a reason why I've gone through what I, I've gone through. It's like, well, that's a danger sign. Warning signal is going off inside of me, and it could be accurate. In other words, that's part of discernment. But at the same time, Eric Ludy needs to be led by the Word of God, not by his experience. The same is true for all of us. The God stone versus a selfish stone. You know, there are going to be times in your life where in a situation you need to make a decision, and if you go the God way, you're losing out. It's inconvenience. That's going to cost you. That could lead to rejection. That could lead to loss of resource. That could lead to imprisonment. Are you going with the God stone or are you going to go with the selfish stone? And we all have this as a constant in our life. And this is why to recognize the just balance is where Christianity is found. Is we must recognize God actually needs to define this. Not me. Not how I feel. Not what I've experienced. What does God desire? The balance of scales. So a just weight and balance belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his work. You ever heard that scripture before? This is what belongs to God. God is interested in balancing that. And so whenever you stick an issue on the table, there is a need for us to agree with it, with the proper weight in our soul. That is the word of God. So what we say is, God, I agree with you. And when we put that agreement together and we say, God, yes, We say amen to God. What it does is it balances it in our life. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So one of the things you're going to see in Scripture is God hates. I mean, the word abomination is associated, because I'm only using a few Scriptures here, is associated with a false balance every time. It's an abomination. It's It's a very strong word. But a false balance is an abomination to God. But a just weight is his delight. Diverse weights are an abomination unto the Lord. What's a diverse weight? That's when you reach in and it's like, I'll use this one for this situation. In other words, you are cunning in what you're doing. You are maybe even justifying it under the banner, well, that's going to help the message get across a little better. So I'm going to use my light gospel in this situation. And I've been in those situations. I know it sounds terrible because even as I'm talking, I'm thinking, yeah, you know what? I probably have done that. Where I've been in a situation where if I was to share the actual truth, I know there would be a falling out. Okay, it wouldn't go over well. And so what do I do? I give sort of a, a different angle on something that maybe sounds a little more pleasant in that situation. And I may have actually given a false weight. But false balances are not of God. So it says, and a false balance is not good. You shall not have in your bag diverse weights. 
Well, there, there's our statement for today, isn't it? In other words, this bag that we are carrying, that we're, we're working from, we're measuring in life our own decisions and our counsel to others, how we speak to others in every situation, we are working from, you could say, this bag. You shall not have in your bag diverse ways, a great and a small. You shall not have in your house diverse measures, a great and a small, but you shall have a perfect and just weight. A perfect and just measure you shall have, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. There's that word abomination again. It's like very strong. It's like, God, can you just be a little lighter on this point? Famous balanced doctrines. Okay, so this will give you sort of some practicals. Now, I'm not going to go into these arguments, but what you're going to see in this process is that the body of Christ is played upon like a fiddle by the enemy often. And it has to do a lot of times with a just balance. Because he knows that if we do not function with a just balance, that actually the entire equilibrium of the body of Christ gets thrown off. And we become a mess. We become factious and we have schism and breakdown. And so that's actually the enemy's course, is to get us to either overemphasize or de-emphasize. So, for instance, as a classic one that has probably broken up the church, maybe more than any issue, I have a lot of good ones here, sovereignty versus free will. Now, both of these are truth. In other words, if you de-emphasize sovereignty, and the fact that God is in control of all, he's over all, uh, you really start to mess with life and truth. If you overemphasize free will, now you have a de-emphasis of something else. So as a result, there's a need to balance. In other words, what you have in the church, in church history, is an overemphasis of one, usually to the nullification or the de-emphasis of the other, which creates all sorts of issues, not just in the personal life of the one who believes that. In other words, if you're like, oh, whatever happens just happens, I really have no free will, no ability to decide in it, it's all God's responsibility, you're putting sin on God. You're putting your rebellion on God. You're impugning him for your idiocy. As opposed to saying, no, I am responsible for what I've done. You see the difference there? However, if you overemphasize free will, it's like, hey, this is my choice. It's my decision. God, you know, just put your blessing on it. And you de-emphasize God and his desire to lead, guide, direct your life, and to control it. Because he can lead you to a Red Sea, and you can go, this is terrible. And yet, God, being sovereign, says, I have you right where I want you. Now, here's what you do right there. You trust me. You trust me to be bigger than that Red Sea, bigger than that Egyptian army, bigger than those mountains surrounding you. You see, you need to have a high view of God. But if you create an imbalance in this, it throws off everything and divides the church. I said I was not going to get into these issues, didn't I? Wasn't I just going to read through these? The righteousness of law versus the saving power of grace. Just because Jesus has come and fulfilled the law does not mean that law is not righteous. It is still law. God has revealed his righteousness through the law. And yet the law tells us one thing. What? You can't do it. You are unrighteous. But that doesn't mean we neglect it and we just throw out and say, oh, I don't care what God says. I don't care of any of his standards because I'm saved by grace. In other words, when you de-emphasize holiness, 
to increase the idea of God's grace and his loving kindness, what you do is you're creating an imbalance. However, if you go the opposite way and you return again to law and say, we need to be perfectly righteous, then what you've done is you've negated the work of the cross and what he's done for you. In other words, you can't be righteous. I thought I wasn't going to teach on these things. I'm going to try and move through these a little faster. Suffering versus prosperity. Suffering is a very real idea in Scripture. And you know that prosperity, oh boy, that that word really disturbs some of us. Just study the word prosper in Scripture. You're going to realize what, what God does for us is he prospers our way. That's what he does. However, he doesn't prosper selfishness. He doesn't prosper flesh. He prospers the work of the Holy Spirit through us. The whole goal isn't health, wealth, and prosperity. The whole goal is the glory of God coming through us, and he prospers that. So if you de-emphasize prosperity, oh, God just wants us miserable. He wants us to suffer. What you've done is you've created, again, an imbalance. Doing good works versus resting in salvation. I could give you a whole message on the fact that we need to do good works. I could. And it'd be powerful, and you would be deeply stirred. I could share with you Matthew 25, 40, the, divide, the dividing of the sheep and the goats. And I could, I could just ask you the question. What is the difference between these? One did something, one didn't. There is a doing in Christianity, but every one of us, I hope, in here understands that we are not saved by our own fleshly natural man doing. We are saved by Christ's doing. And when we function as a Christian, Christ works through us to do good works. And he prepares them in advance for us to do them. But when you emphasize or de-emphasize, when you take the rest of salvation, the fact that I need to actually enter into Christ's work and his work is sufficient. We crave to be holy. But guess what? You try and be holy on your own. Go, Go out and just be holy. You can't do it. He is Capital H, holy. He is your holiness. He is your righteousness. He is the satisfaction of the law of heaven. And so as a result, when you overemphasize, de-emphasize any of these things, it creates an imbalance which leads to a disruption of health in the body. The importance of purity versus the beauty of liberty. You ever had this discussion? I've written, I think, around 12 books on uh, relationships and sexuality and all this. And, oh, I tell you what, this issue is just, it's like, I'm free to do what Christ, you know, has set me free to do, which I'm attracted to people and I'll just sort of follow that. It's like, I think something's wrong there, buddy. And then you have the other side, which is, I need to be pure. I can't do anything and no fun in my life. I cannot do a romance, evil. Uh, and so you end up with these overemphasis or de-emphasis, which creates a lack either way, a destruction either way. The authority of the text of Scripture versus the divine governance of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Word of God in text is God's commission to us, and this is how we need to live our life. It's a good statement. How about this one? I am under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and whatever He asks me to do, I will do. That's a good, situ- that's a good statement, too. Now, what if someone says, the Holy Spirit has led me to do something? This side says, but that contradicts the word of God in text. Which one wins? Okay, you follow me? It looks like there's a tension. There's not a tension in any one of these. There's a just balance that is in God's back. However, we have a tendency to have a light stone in each of these. And as a result, it will distort the outcome and the fruit of our life. However, do you know the Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that contradicts the text of Scripture? You know who gave us the text of Scripture? I know this is a shocker. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not a liar. He does not contradict himself. He doesn't say one thing out of this side of his mouth and another thing out of this side. 
But it is a very real thing that he will speak to you. Some people say, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak. He already spoke. The Holy Spirit will lead us. He will lead us, but he will never lead us in contradiction to the text. Otherwise, we are chaos in here. Submitting to earthly authority versus civil disobedience. Well, I know I'm pressing on a lot of issues because I know a lot of you in here of the different struggles that we all have. Submitting to earthly authority, is it a very real thing in Scripture? It is. Civil disobedience, which seems to be the exact opposite of submitting to earthly authority, right? To say, no, when the priests say, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus. And then Peter and John say, no. Uh, do you know that Peter and John, Peter and John, do you know that the Bible commands you to obey the priests? What, I mean, what are you, what are you guys doing? It is better for us to obey God than man. And so what you see is a tension. But if you overemphasize submitting to earthly authority, what could happen? What if your authority goes south? What if they say, don't preach in the name of Jesus? What do you do? If you overemphasize civil disobedience, where do you go? You become a rebel. You become a rebel to God's system. Could you imagine little kids in here catching the idea of civil disobedience? Wait a minute, God's leading me, mom and dad. You follow me? This could create all sorts of chaos in the body of Christ. Organized government versus individual freedom. Does God teach governments? I mean, there's a whole sector of Christianity that thinks that government is unspiritual, when in actuality, government flows from God. All government flows from God. Yes, it can go corrupt very quickly, and almost all government out there is secular in that sense. It's not God-fearing. It's not God-controlled. It's not like the Hebrew Republic, which was a God Republic, which was under God's word and all that. We're not that way. However, do you know that government is a God idea? Where does parental government come from? Is that man's idea? Actually, it's God's idea. Where does self-government? I'm, I'm supposed to be responsible to govern my own body. Where does that come from? Does that come from the, the world out there? It's say, yeah, you better do that. No, they tell me the opposite. God actually teaches self-government. He teaches marriage government. He teaches family government. And he teaches church government. Whoa. It's a fact. And so when we have a light weight on that, and we're like, oh, I don't like that. I've seen it abused. Yep, so have I. However, if we have a light weight, what happens? you end up with the opposite happening, which is usually individual freedom. Hey, I'm autonomous. I don't come under any of this. The Spirit of God is leading me elsewhere. I'm not going to do that. You see the tension that can happen? And yet both sides are true. Does God individually lead us? Yeah. Can he speak to us as individual? Yes, he can. In fact, both are true, and we could make a case for both, and that's where the just balance needs to be and not the argument over which one is more correct. They're both correct. So Tozier, uh, here's a good quote that Sandy delivered to me this week. Things are as they are. That's a great statement. Uh, It's profound, isn't it? Things are as they are. Whether we like it or not. It is our business to find out how they are and accept them as they are and then make our teaching conform to them as they are. When truth has been revealed in the word of God, our business is to find out what the truth is and in all of our teaching and living, conform to that truth. We are not to edit or change it, but to let it stand just as it is. We are not to lighten the stone. We are not to increase the weight of the stone because it is being devalued over here. We don't increase it. We have a just weight. We have God's weight on it. And we all have a tendency to make up the difference. You ever been in, you know, marriage is a classic environment for this, but in almost any environment, we are 
balancers. So if someone is de-emphasizing something in a conversation, what we, will we, what we will do is usually create the opposite argument, just to sort of try and create a balance there. The problem is we're oftentimes adding more weight to something to try and offset the devaluation on the other side, which can create just as much of a problem. So here's what I wanted to focus on today because this is where I would say our great challenge is as a body. And one of the forward movement things that I just want to bring to the surface and say, yeah, let's, let's work through this, but with eyes wide open. I'm after a just balance. That's what I'm after. I want the Bible to rule here, but I want the Holy Spirit to have full freedom in our midst. So how does he do that? The full right and expression of church government. Okay. Now, if I were just to say that, we were to remove the bottom part, some of you get a little, uh, it's a little oppressive in here. If we were to say, let's, let's learn as the church what the full and right expression of church government is. And it just sounds heavy-handed, doesn't it? It just sounds very controlling. It sounds uh, like it's going to exasperate children. And that's because it will if it is not balanced. You see, the church government is critical, just like parents are. But if parents... Uh, control their kids to the point where the children have no voice or no ability to appeal and no ability to say anything, you actually create an unhealthy form of government. You're putting too much weight on something that God has put weight on. But now you're like taking either your light stone or your extra heavy stone and sticking it in there and you're disturbing something that God has established. God has established church government. It's a fact. And any of us in here that have been hurt by church government or by leadership, what do we have a tendency to do? have a light stone in our back. Church government needs to be a lot lighter. It needs, it can't be emphasized. I've seen it emphasized and wow, it gets out of control. And as a result, we unwittingly oftentimes carry a light stone. It's like, we'll give, we'll get, we'll we'll nod our head and say, yeah, I see that in scripture. Oh yeah, I agree with you doctrinally, brother. But you have a capital B, capital U, capital T, but, but I'm very concerned about emphasizing that. Well, if you de-emphasize it, you actually create equal problems to overemphasis. So what is this being versed in this? What's the balance? The full right and expression of spiritual gifts. So if one of you in here said, uh, look, Pastor Eric, there's a lot that this church has that is not being used. And this body is not actually functioning in full expression. You know, I would actually agree with you. And so as... Church government, what should church government be doing? Should church government be squelching spiritual gifts? No, they should actually be facilitating. So the fact that there's church government doesn't mean the absence of the opposite, even though at first blush they seem like they're contradictory. Because I tell you what, how can you have a healthy church? I mean, if if you've ever studied church government and you introduce the idea of spiritual gifts, it feels like chaos. It just does. It's like, well, who's in charge of this? Who's, gov- who's testing to see if that's even true? This person's saying, I have something from the Holy Spirit. And all of us are like, oh, well, it's the Holy Spirit talking. We can't check it. You follow me? Who's, do we just let everyone just go berserk and do whatever they want? Or is there order to it? Well, every one of us in here is probably going to say, there should be order to it. Yeah, that's right. But what is that order? How does it function? Where does it come from? Because some, one of you, you know, I could say something, you could stand up and go, uh, <clears throat> my spiritual gift is to say, 
that you, oh, Eric, are a heretic. You know, and that's your spirit. I'm like, oh. And it's all awkward. And now we're standing around going, okay, what do I do to that? Because that's their spiritual gift and they're using it. So how do we test? How do we approve? How do we have the balance, the just balance between the order that God has established in the church and the freedom and the liberty for you as the body to actually function without oppression and without undue restraint? So what is proper restraint? Technically, a healthy government is a protector first. In other words, wolf pack over here, and the shepherd goes, whoa, we got a wolf pack, clobber. In other words, they are a comforter of sheep, an enabler of sheep, and a clobberer of wolves. Okay, that's the great definition of a father right there. And yet, there are subsidiary functions, and this is part of what I think our church leadership is learning the balance in. It is very possible, I'm not going to exclude it and remove it from the table, that our church has emphasized one to the exclusion of the other. I wouldn't take it off the table, even though I'm not going to indict our church leadership because I know our heart. Our heart is to not have a light stone, but I don't think we could argue back strongly to say that we haven't had somewhat of a light stone in regards to spiritual gifts. Because in our minds, we're thinking, but I agree with it. Oh yeah, I agree with spiritual gifts. But then we stick it up on the scale and it really doesn't move it much. In other words, something may be understated or underplayed in our midst. But I actually think that there's some of us in here that would do the opposite and have a light stone in regards to leadership in the church and the importance of it. And so it's knowing how to find that just balance in here that I think God is desiring to do in us. Can the two work together? Or must they always be at enmity one with the other? Those that have a desire to express spiritual gifts and then the oppressive uh, government that says, nope, nope, not in this uh, territory. This is a sane, orderly church. We don't do those things. The challenge. You can't pick sides on this one. You need to seek a just balance because both are clearly commanded. Technically, I think every single one of us should just come right to the center of the issue and say, actually, we agree. None of us can have a light stone. And so you could appeal to me and say, Eric, I think your stone is a little light. And what's, you know what's funny? Is I'm not going to argue with you. I actually think my vulnerability is that my stone for spiritual gifts is light. I use them in my own life all the time. I'm a little concerned about you using them. Because I don't know what's going to happen. Do you follow me? That's just, that's a very, that's a high level propensity. Where's that coming from? Emotion and experience. I've seen this abused. So because I've seen something abused, my stone can be lighter than it should be. In my mind, I can say, I have the stone. So as long as I have the stone, I'm, I'm right, right? Right, aren't I? But if my stone is light, and it's not the right measurement that God has put on it, if God has put a heavier weight to this, what should I do? I should agree and swap out my ridiculous stone for his. God, you're right. This is the weight you put on it. Corinth. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about Corinth. Corinth is one of those great uh, locations in Scripture that reminds us that even in the early church, they had the same exact issues. There's nothing more spiritual about the early church in the sense of the raw materials that God was using. Sometimes we just think, oh, man, these people are superheroes. Actually, they're just like us. There's the same makeup, the same build, the same clayishness. And Corinth is a great illustration of what goes wrong, what can go wrong in a church. In fact, I would say it's a great study in modern Christianity, yet it happened 2,000 years ago. And so I'm going to call it the church splattered with controversy. Very simply put, they had unjust balance. Now, one of the stories that if you go through our training, you'll hear us bring up 
And I don't know, Philip, if you uh, use JoJo's shoes. Do you use JoJo's shoes at all when you teach that or you use different illustrations? Okay, so there's a story. David Wilkerson was in inner city New York, and there's a gang leader named JoJo. And uh, JoJo is, he lives on a park bench. David Wilkerson comes up. He has these shiny, nice new shoes. Uh, and uh, as he's talking with JoJo, JoJo says, look, preacher, you don't understand me. You're, you're of a different kind, a different sort. Uh, I mean, look at you. You have your bright new shoes. I've never had new shoes in my life. Okay, so David Wilkerson recognizes that his shoes are an impediment to the effective transfer of the, of the gospel. So you know what he does? He takes off his shoes and says, Jojo, you complaining so much about my shoes? They're yours. He goes, I don't want your shoes. He still took them. Put them on, they fit. Uh, and what happened is Jojo, and I'm going to summarize the story, is one to Christ. Okay? So we as the church hear it. We hear that story, and we break up into two factions over it. Okay? We're arguing from that day forward on the issue of shoes. So Apollos comes to town, and this one group goes, hey, Apollos, uh, do you see what happened here uh, in this story uh, when David Wilkerson took off his shoes and gave them? Do you think that was the right thing to do? And Apollo says, yes, I think that was the right thing to do. So this group becomes the always give shoes to people. You, it's the shoeless brigade, basically. So they never wear shoes. Why don't you wear shoes? Lest they stumble our brother. And so as a result, this faction becomes the shoeless brigade. Then you have the other side over here that's like, what do you, what do you mean? This has nothing to do with not wearing shoes. And so then they, you know, Paul comes to town. They go, hey, Paul, is it okay with God if we wear shoes? And what does Paul say? Yeah, it's no big deal. So then what do they do? Yeah, I'm with Paul. These guys are, well, I'm with Apollos. And guess what? Paul and Apollos would not be with either of these groups. In other words, what they're doing is they're taking and creating an unhealthy balance issue. They are putting emphasis on something that actually is off. Okay, they're de-emphasizing over here something or maybe over-emphasizing something here. In other words, the point is, what does God have in the middle? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul shares his reason for writing. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Just ponder that for a second. This is Paul's desire. This church is a wreck. He desires that they all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same, same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Okay, now this isn't just Corinth. This is the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not just saying this is us. I'm just saying this is the propensity that we all have. Where does it come from? It comes from creating de-emphasis or over-emphasis. And it's actually correct. If someone sees me de-emphasizing something, are they correct in saying Eric has a light stone? Yeah, they are. But how they handle that would define if they are balanced. And so that's the challenge we face because we can examine each other and go, oh, light stone there. Oh, massively heavy stone there. And we can divide over these things. And it's like, well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm with Apollos. Well, I'm with Paul. I guess Apollos was over here. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Paul. And we feel so smug and spiritual in our camp. Meanwhile, all we're doing is dividing. We're doing the exact opposite of what this, this book was even written to help with. So what are the contentions? Now, I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
Pastor Paul has his hands full with Corinth. This is just an overview of, of the book of 1 uh, Corinthians. I mean, it's a depressing landscape. If you, were just, if you do a book study on, on the Corinthian church and on 1 Corinthians, I mean, it is, it's bad news, guys. So they have contentious and denomina- they're contentious and de- denominationally minded, divisive, making every peripheral doctrinal theme a dividing point while forgetting the doctrinal theme that is the most important. Arrogant and puffed up, thinking they are immune to correction and are free to live out their Christianity any way they see fit. Controlled by the flesh, they're babes. Carnal and controlled by self's passion for comfort, control, and recognition. They're sexually immoral, exercising their liberty in Christ in a manner that feels good to them, though it may harm others. Aggressively separating from all sinners the world over. Their hyper-eagerness to please God out of distancing from all that is sexually immoral. Taking each other to court, allowing the secular world to make decisions in regard to the church. Eating food sacrificed to idols, enjoying liberty at the expense of another's conscience. Unwillingness to give up anything, their rights, their earthly pleasures, their possessions, and their control over their life. Refusing to cover the head properly, showing shocking disrespect and dishonor, dishonor, dishonor to their God-given authority. Handling communion with utter disregard to the preciousness and sacredness of it, diminishing the value of the shed blood of Jesus. Chaotic and disorderly in their use of spiritual gifts, out-of-control tongue-talking and prophesying. Women jumping ahead of the men, dishonor and disrespect, undermining God's clearly appointed leadership. Audacious question of the resurrection. After all, that's pretty preposterous to think that people can rise from the dead. This is like nonsense. Every single one of us is like, what's going on there? And we're praying to be the early church. It's like, let's just make sure that we don't head in this direction, because this is the early church. The church has struggled with the same things we struggle with from the beginning. Why? We have the same enemy, and he's up to the same no good. He knows how to divide us. What we need to become experts in is how to find balance. We need to look for just balance. We need to look for that center point where we can say, even though we may actually disagree on subtleties, we agree on what matters. The two ditches in the center line, the Liberty Ditch. This is exactly what happened in Corinth, okay? The Liberty Ditch is over here. There's a ditch. There's a narrow way right down the middle. It's called Jesus and Him Crucified. And then over here, there's this Liberty Ditch, but it's a ditch. It gets you off track. It's like, hey, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. And so what are these people doing? They're living in accordance with their old flesh. And they're saying, I feel it, I do it. And then what's their justification? Hey, I'm in Christ. I have freedom in Christ to do it. You know that that's actually not what the Bible teaches? You have freedom in Christ, don't get me wrong, but not to do what the flesh wants, to do what the spirit wants. So this is a liberty ditch, okay? And it's a real ditch, and it kills Christianity, and it divides the church. And you have the other side, the law ditch. It's like, oh, those people are sexually immoral. I will have nothing to do with them. And so they're literally separating. They're creating their own little cloister. They're a denomination in and of themselves that are smug and arrogant. And this is exactly the division points that have always been in the church. We know them as liberal and conservative. Sound familiar? In other words, what we oftentimes miss is what God has called us to. Now, because I lean more conservative, I understand this side fairly well. It's like, oh, boy, that's bad stuff. Can you believe these guys over here? Politics. If you get baited into the common narrative and arguments of our day, you will not be functioning like a Christian. A Christian doesn't look at a, a liberal as satanic and a conservative as holy just because they have conservative fiscal views. They're all people in need of a savior. You know, there's a lot of conservatives that are dying and going to hell. That's a, a terror. Did I just say that? 
Republicanism doesn't save you from your sin. These people are dying and lost. The fact that I would say the Bible leans conservative shows my hand, right? However, did you know that you should have love for those that are hateful towards you? You should be praying for those that want you dead. Isn't that the story of Christian history? And so who's that for us as American Christians? Well, it includes everyone, but especially those that hate you. They need the gospel. The Liberty Ditch, just a little to the left, the Christian Sadducee. The Law Ditch, just a little to the right, the Christian Pharisee. Both lead to destruction. You know that ancient Judea was based on the same thing? You know that both of these groups killed Jesus? Isn't that an irony? In other words, they were the religious leaders, and they killed the Messiah, the one that both of them were waiting for, because they were either, they were off balance, they had an unjust measure. So what is Paul building towards? The, the, the key point in the book of 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has an argument that he's laying out. He's going through all of this junk that the church of Corinth is going through, and he builds it all to an end point. He says, guys, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. It's not liberty, and it's not law. It's love. And if you function in love, you actually are free in Christ, and you are walking in a standard that reveals Jesus Christ, but without hindrance. So the missing ingredient in Corinth. And yet I show you a more excellent way. This is the last verse before the famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. And for those of you that have heard me teach on this before, excellent is hyperbole, which is where we get the word hyperbole. And yet what it means is a way that is so far beyond. That's why I'm doing this. It's a javelin throw. And so I throw it as far as all of us get up here and we throw our javelin and we're all impressed because one of you reached the doorway and we're like, wow, he's good. Paul says, hey, guys, hand me the javelin. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. He throws it 10,000 miles. We're like, what was that? He says, love. You see, you can dicker and debate about these things and get your javelin to the end of the doorway there. I'm going to show you how to change the world. I'm going to show you how to exhibit Jesus Christ in this world, how we are knit together to function. It's love. So you're going to see in the parenthetical uh, sections, I'm going to take Paul's arguments earlier. Now it says, if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if you prophesy, prophesy, you know, have uh, spiritual knowledge, or if you give all you possess to the poor. Okay, I'm lifting that out, not because I'm trying to desecrate the scripture, but to make a point here. Though I aggressively defend the doctrines of Peter, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I vigorously argue on behalf of the conclusions of Apollos, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I animately champion the exhortations of Paul, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If you have unjust measures in your bag, well then what are you doing? You're actually accomplishing nothing. You say you're waiting for the Messiah, or for, in our sake, to reveal the Messiah. That's what we're doing. We're not waiting for him, now we're revealing him. You say you're revealing the Messiah, but you're missing the measurements that he has given us. He says, what's in your bag? Is love in there? Do you, have, do you have love in there? Because that's his just measurement. You stick love on any weight and balances it. Love is the solution for everything. It actually solves the riddle here. What would be love in this situation? The love Christian is right down the middle. We'll call him the Christian Christian. Love harnesses liberty. So liberty's real, but love harnesses it so that it's not in the flesh, but it's in the spirit. 
Love fulfills the law. So it doesn't mean there's not a standard. The love is the fulfillment of the standard. You know that you will not steal if you love? You know that you will not commit adultery if you love? In other words, it does not mean the desecration of law. You actually fulfill it with love. So if you're loving, you don't concern yourself with keeping law. You fulfill law in your behavior in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Only that which flows out of the power of heavenly love is worth anything in the grand landscape of eternity. The anatomy of love, very simply put, is God's nature of humble, selfless giving. It's considering someone else above you. So your great errand is to consider their soul, their circumstances, not your own. And when you think that way, when I, if I were to think that way with us, does it matter how... I emotionally feel about something, or my experience, I'm going to say, but God, what do you say is the most loving for this body? What would be your expression to them? Even if it makes me uncomfortable and it goes against my personality type, makes no difference. If I love, then I'm going to facilitate the just weight. I'm going to say, God, this is the emphasis you put on it, and though my personal experience says, I believe your word. And I believe your Holy Spirit can bring that balance if I love. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples. Dot, dot, dot. What is he going to put after that? What's he going to say? By this all men will know that we are the disciples of Christ. What would that be? Now, of course, all of you are like, oh, Eric, we already know this. But that's why I'm bringing it out. I'm bringing it to the surface to say this is the premier revelation of the Christian. So you could have all these other things. You could be right doctrinally in every area of your life, but if you don't have this, what's the good of all that? If you de-emphasize this and have a light weight here, you're missing the whole kit and caboodle of Christianity. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. This is where we start. In other words, if we're going to do this well, if we're going to all function together we sort of need first things first. We need to make sure that we have the just balance, that our stones are being corrected to be according to the measurement of Scripture, that the weights we're putting in there actually match what God intends. And what happens is we can begin to function, but the key to make that work is love. All of us need to check our merchant bag. So that's basically what this is. And I, that's what I've been going through in this because I think it's a very good question for me as a leader. Am I overemphasizing something in the development of the church because of my experience? Am I de-emphasizing anything in the building of the church because of my experience? I want the word of God to have healthy weight and to steer us because I don't want to miss the Messiah the way the Pharisees did. They were conservatives. I genuinely do not want to be a Pharisee. I genuinely want to receive my Messiah when he's born into Bethlehem. And when he grows up amidst that. I want to be a Simeon. I want to be an Anna. I want to be one who looks at that cross and says, There, right there, hanging between two, between two thieves. I know he looks like a criminal, but that's my Messiah. I want to be one who humbles myself even before the Sanhedrin, because they'll kick me out. And I say, I have found my Messiah. He healed my sight of blindness. He healed me of blindness. 
And even though they'll kick me out because I'll say his name as if it actually has authority, I'm willing to be purged from all of public opinion and be in the trash can in their opinion if I could be right with him. This is the challenge of every generation. But we have to be willing to agree with the word of God. We have to be willing to allow that chief weight to be established in our soul. And I'm going to say, I've been calling it love, but I'm going to start with it as being Jesus. The chief weight is Jesus. If you're de-emphasizing, have a light weight on Jesus, everything's off in your soul. But if you have a correct weight on Jesus, what do you also have a correct weight on? Love. In other words, if you're following Jesus, and Jesus has access to your life, and the Holy Spirit is working in you, what are you going to have as your chief uh, display of life and health? Love. We get that stone correct, and everything starts to come into play. All of us need to check our merchant bag. Do we have any light stones that we are putting on the scale? Spiritual gifts. I'm going to just stop on each one of these, and I just want you to allow the Holy Spirit, if there is a de-emphasis or an over. In other words, you're so frustrated with this church that you've seriously been pondering getting out of here. Because this church just does not have it together in this area. I I understand. You know that I have those same emotions and those same thoughts? I've actually had a thought many times of like saying, hey guys, you go your way, I'll go my way. I don't know where I'd be going, right? Because the church bothers us. It really does at times. Because we want it to just be the way we are. And if it's not, it rubs us. It's iron sharpening iron is what it is. This is healthy for us to walk through. This is healthy for us to wrestle with. Spiritual gifts. How about this? Church governance. I really don't like this, this eldership thing. You know, all this. They take it so seriously. Well, if you see the commands to the leadership in church, like in the Bible, what it says to us, we're in big trouble as leaders if we don't do our job. We have a greater level of responsibility. If we call ourselves teachers... We are held to a higher level of accountability. You want to know why we take it seriously? It's because we're commanded to. Can we take it too seriously and add too much weight? Yeah, we can. It's happened all throughout Christian history too, but God has never nullified his command just because it can be abused. Every single one of these things has been abused. We as the church don't throw them out because they've been abused. We return to love. We say, okay, how does a leader love? How do we handle with love the giftings that everyone has? Sovereignty. Are we de-emphasizing it? Because we've seen the extreme. The guy standing in front of you has seen an extreme in this. And so my emotion goes, eh, eh. and yet, if you break it down, you start asking me questions to my soul of who I think God is, yep, he's sovereign. That weight has to be the weight that God himself puts on it. Free will. Suffering. Well, that's an easy one for Americans to have a lightweight on. It's like, oh, I know it's in Scripture, but I think that was more for the early church. As opposed to recognizing anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Fact, guys, get the right weight. Prosperity, I don't know what to do with that. Boy, I have some serious emotion that comes up on that one. I, I was heavily exposed to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel when I was growing up. And I tell you what, it's weird just hearing the word I'll probably have to do a whole teaching series. I could just see God studying it in play. I'm going to have to do a whole teaching series on prosperity. So I'd be like, tell me when that's going to be. I'm not showing up. It's funny because our natural bent is we want in our human side prosperity. But many of us in here have been exposed to the extremes and the fleshliness of people wanting wealth and Lear jets. 
that we don't recognize that God wants to lead us unto triumph. But that doesn't mean a whole bunch of money in the bank always. It doesn't mean Learjets. It means that what we are doing prospers. When I'm sharing the gospel, people are hearing it. When I, I mean, that's what we want. And so we actually need to understand the Spirit of God leads us unto something that actually works in this world. That's his design. The righteousness of the law. Yeah. No, it's actually something you need to have a proper weight for. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Because if we didn't have him, we have no hope in this world. Because God is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous, righteous, righteous. He is perfect, perfect, perfect. But we find our refuge in Christ's holy, holy, holiness. We find our refuge in Christ's righteous, righteous, righteousness. And that is our consolation in this. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't throw out the righteousness of God in the process. The saving power of grace. Some of you struggle with even the word grace because it's been abused. It's a good word. It's the power of God literally working in you to bring about his salvation. He saves us by grace. Doing good works. Resting in salvation. Purity in Christ. Liberty in Christ. The text of scripture. You ever had someone who's so serious about scripture that they become rather miserable to deal with? And so what can easily happen? We can get a light stone with that. When in actuality, the scriptures are the basis of everything. If you devalue scripture, you know who you devalue? Scripture in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And if you devalue the scriptures in the flesh known as Jesus Christ, what are you devaluing? His work on the cross. And so what you've unwittingly done is you've devalued the work of the cross. Well, that's a dangerous thing. That's right. So though people have abused things and hit people over the head with it, it does not mean it's not true. There is a truth, but there's a balance to that, which we need love for. How about the active voice of the Holy Spirit? Oh. Whether you like it or not, the Holy Spirit is alive and well. And he desires to work in your life. He desires to lead you as an individual. He desires to lead us as the church. There's a difference between what we could call logos, which is translated as word, and rema, which is translated as word. What's the difference? Logos is a general revelation. It's called scripture to all of us. Rhema is a specific application of that logos to each of us as individuals. Where'd that come from? Same spirit. But he will never violate the logos in giving us rhema. But without the rhema, how do you live your life? How do you take that scripture and know what to do today? The Holy Spirit leads us. He applies scripture to us. It's called rhema. It's not a new Bible. It's the Bible made flesh in us. It's the Bible brought to life. We become living epistles. How? By the Holy Spirit. So that we are conformed to the image of Christ. All right, this is our finishing touch to this message. Jesus. Do you have a light stone in your bag for Jesus? Who is Jesus? If one of you said he's king of kings, say that's right. That means he has authority over all things. You know that all things are under his feet? There is nothing that is not under his feet. He has authority over all things. Do you recognize him as king of kings? He has authority over your life. Every cell within your body is under his control. Will you give it to him? Will you yield it? Will you get a correct weight to that stone? So one of you could say, he's Lord of Lords. That's right. You know that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth? What scripture reveals? Jesus is. You're like, I thought he was born 2,000 years ago. Yeah, uh, what did he also say? Before Abraham was, I am. 
It says, the one who will come and be born in Bethlehem, you know what it says? His goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. And over and over and over again within the scriptures, it says that he created the heavens and the earth. Jesus, that means he was in the beginning with God. That's right. That's who Jesus is. Don't devalue him. You know who has come to this earth? Was born a baby, laid in a feeding trough? You know who grew up amongst us and had no sin? This this man was persecuted. He was reviled and mocked. You know who that was? That was God Almighty come to this earth. Don't devalue him and just make him human. He was human. But he was human in a way that only one man in all of earth's history has been. And that is he was 100% God the whole while he was human. Don't let that stone go light. Because when that stone has the healthy weight, what do we do? We bend our knee. What do we do? We submit and we say, God, you examine my merchant bag, and if there's anything in there that is not in agreement with you, you are my king of kings, you are my lord of lords. What you say goes. He is the word of God made flesh. What Jesus says goes. And that's how we function. He's the head of this. And so whatever he says, we bend our knee. What if it makes us uncomfortable? So be it. What if it makes us feel a little awkward and our emotions are like, eh, eh, eh. so be it. By the way, that's a whole bunch of Christianity. Is, eh, eh, oh, oh, you know, the whole time, you, you try it. Come up to someone today after church and talk to them about Jesus. You know what you're going to feel the whole time? Eh, eh, oh, oh. It's not natural for us to engage this world with supernatural truth. So as a result, if you listen to that one side which self-preserves, you will never step forward. And so that is the lesson for all of us here. We desire the balance. Jesus. Love for one another. Will we have disagreements? Yes, but those disagreements do not need to divide us. Will we have things that need to be changed in emphasis? Yep. In fact, I don't know that there's ever a time when a church doesn't have that. However, it's how we handle that difference that actually showcases the glory of God. It's not the fact that we all actually land in the same exact point on every single scripture and say, yep, 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 yep. It's that we land in the same scriptures with the same Christ and we say, yep, 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 yep. Even though over here, this person's a little funny over there. Well, look at that over there. In other words, that's not what we do, though. We get rid of this pointer finger and we take out a basin and a towel, and we wash each other's feet. We pray for one another. We care for one another. And in so doing, we actually are finding the balance. Because it's not if you give your shoes or never wear shoes, or if you wear your shoes, that has nothing to do with it. It's that you, when your shoes are required, give them up because of love. Jojo needs the gospel, guys. So sometimes that might mean wearing shoes. Sometimes that might mean giving them up. What matters is love. Love will fulfill it all. It will cause us to go the right way. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.